Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Interop Talk. I'm your moderator, Dave Castle, Chief Customer Officer at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director of Care Equality. With me, as always, is Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health, as well as Jennifer Blumenthal, Director of Product for One Record, Milliman and Telescript. And we do have a new face today, uh, filling in for Devin McGraw, who's on vacation, is Jocelyn Keegan, uh, Payer Practice Lead at Point of Care Partners and Program Manager of HL7 International's Da Vinci Project. Uh, welcome, Jocelyn. Excited to be here and uh, get to spend some time with you guys. Awesome. Well, I, I'd actually uh, like to jump to you right away uh, and start off by having you tell us a bit about the latest from the Da Vinci Project, uh, including uh, with a little bit of background for those who aren't familiar with the Da Vinci Project and its work, but but interested in, in just uh, where it's at and what you see as some of its successes and challenges. Awesome. And I'll, um, I'll break um, just to be able to ask maybe a little bit of direction for you on where you want me to head, but just for folks in the audience that aren't familiar with Da Vinci, um, we started the project about six years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. It was about six years ago in September. We said, um, hey, um, could we, for payers and providers, uh, leverage HL7 Fire in a way that the um, Argonaut team had, you know, people getting together and saying, how could we leverage uh, this burgeoning technology that's enabling APIs to happen in healthcare uh, to really look at some of the stickiest, most painful problems for payers and providers and their ability to be able to share information. And um, I think some important context maybe for folks who haven't been with us since the beginning is really when we think about the industry's shift to value-based care, um, the road rails like just don't exist for clinical data to be shared at scale between payers and providers. Um, historically, you know, most transactions between payers and providers have been based on administrative data uh, and really in the realm sort of of X12 and very sort of, uh, I'd say, clinical light um, from a transaction volume or NCPDP over on the pharmacy side that has a little bit more clinical data, but still is pretty restricted. And so um, FIRE really provided, uh, I think, a really good building ground to really get to uh, the, I'd say, a more um, codified way to share information um, and get through some of maybe the struggles that we had seen uh, in the early days of CCDA adoption of really getting to, I, I think, sort of the promise of automation between payers and providers and their workflows. So um, we've got about 54 members today. Uh, it has uh, been, um, I think, a little over, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, additions, and we've sort of constrained the size of the project just to keep it focused and really encourage people to come and participate as community members. Um, in recent years, the last two years, we've actually been actively building membership and recruiting sort of missing components and types of organizations to the team. Um, but that our focus today really is on building implementation guides, the standard guides that tell people how to solve specific business problems do we, between payers and providers leveraging the fire spec. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really amazing, I would say, at this point in time, um, to look at the breadth of the work. We've now got uh, over 14 guides out in the market that people are picking up and using it. And in the recent um, last couple cycles, um, our friends at CMS have been leveraging and referencing the work in DaVinci to start to require the use of these guides around workflows like prior authorization, um, payers sharing the clinical data they have to patients, um, uh, like the folks that Jen works with, and, uh, and increasingly payer sharing data with other payers really to, I think, reduce burden um, holistically on providers across the space. Um, a couple of our new use cases are starting to really look at the bigger picture around value-based care and how do we allow payers and providers to measure sort of their success in a given con contract. Um, and we have some new use cases that are more budding sort of the X12 side of the house around making sure people can understand where payment is coming from and solving some problems um, as sort of a connector in the power that, that, that um, FIRE has to be able to be that connector or that supplement between existing standards. So uh, super excited. We've got some really good demonstration projects we can talk a little bit about today if you're interested. Um, uh, just showing really um, the ability and the capability for us to be able to, uh, to, to get real world adoption uh, in a voluntary manner of some of these standards because the pain points are out there, you know, um, for on a day-to-day -day basis between these different, you know, entities out in the market. 
Yeah, and, and you, you oh, oh, yeah, no, go ahead, Stephen, go ahead. I just wanted to jump in just to acknowledge that, you know, Jocelyn and uh, and I go back to the early days of DaVinci, where, where we got, I got invited to serve on the steering committee and then actually uh, helped to start their clinical advisory committee as well, which I which I still serve on. And, uh, you know, and it's really interesting what you were saying, Jocelyn, because it's it's true that the payer provider exchange historically was really based on individual, you know, bills being submitted and payments being made and claims being adjudicated and, and people having very inefficient ways of pulling together files or putting in, you know, specific V2 interfaces. And, and the challenge and the reason why so many providers didn't want to share data with payers is they didn't want to share too much. They didn't want to give away, you know, too much of their, you know, IP and clinical data to payers that where they really felt like they were in conflict with one another. So I think the promise of FIRE is being able to be more specific and targeted in terms of just which data is being shared for which use cases. So it was really great because DaVinci came along right as this whole national discussion uh, around burden and, and lowering administrative challenges for you know, both payers and providers came up. And now, as you say, now we've got all these CMS rules they're moving forward that point directly to those DaVinci implementation guides and say, this, this is the technology toolkit that we need to use to solve these problems. Yeah, and I think there's a really important point in there, which is the industry itself is in transition, right? And we're seeing massive um, redefinition of payer and provider relationships out in the market. And so I think that this is one of the things about sort of like what has made it successful. I think it's this, I like to refer affectionately to the party of the willing, right? That's out there saying, we know we need to fix these problems and organizations like Stevens, former um, employer and um, other provider organizations and leading payers and vendors getting out there and saying, we want to demonstrate that this technology works and we can really solve these problems. Because as we move into value-based care, the relationship between payers and providers fundamentally shifts um, and the focus becomes on really outcomes, right? And that increasing that quality and reducing burden. I think that I want to underpin in the entire conversation today with, you know, the technology is one thing, but it's really this business process change that's happening in how these part, how different parties are working together and the evolution inside of these organizations of how people work with their partners out in the market is fundamentally different than what it has historically been. And the business model's that driving that, but there's another, uh, there's a, a multitude of reasons that are sort of pitching us all that way, right? Um, and, and I would say more progressive payers and provider organizations want to be the people sort of figuring out how we do that together. And, and those are the folks I get to play with on a day-to-day -day basis. So. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you say that. And, and actually, there were, there were a couple of, of questions and directions that I, 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 I'm thinking of for, for going from there. But, um, you know, historically, as you were alluding to, and, and as, as Stephen alluded to as well, there, there has not necessarily been a, 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 a completely amicable relationship between payers and providers generally. The, <laughs> do, you, do you see that? How, how, how much do you see that fundamentally changing? How much do people look at, at you know, the, the fact that FIRE gives them a more targeted payload and that really solves the problem? And how much is there really just some, some deep-seated challenges there? So I, I'm going to talk more broadly about sort of payers willingly going into this new world, right? And then I'm going to tag Jen, because I know she has opinions here um, about sort of the willingness of people to change, right? So I think that, that um, you know, we live in a world where people uh, rely on regulation to get roadmap defined and to get funding to do work. That's just reality. And I think that it's Pollyannish to say that, you know, people are just going to go off and do things at scale uh, uniformly you know, voluntarily. That's just not happening. There are the leading organizations that are changing. And I think those are the folks that actually like sat down at the table with their key, you know, um, partners in a particular ecosystem or region, right? So I'll pick on our friends at Multicare and um, Regents, which is Cambia. Health is their blue in the Northwest is, um, is, is Multicare. And they've been sort of our like shining example. They've been the people willing to go first and prove out a lot of these IGs work. And the data that they get back, the results they get back on the savings on the provider side and the savings on the payer side, it's like stupid simple. Um, 
you know, I listened to to um, to one of our MCG colleagues say from a stage at the state HIT meeting in March that they're showing a 200% improvement in turnaround time for PAs, for people that are trying to get surgery, right? Um, and reducing that time literally from weeks or a week to minutes. Like it's people, you know, people get to do higher, better purpose things when that happens. And I think mm -hmm. when organizations realize it's not just one payer doing that to one organization, often it's eight different parts of a payer doing that to one organization. Um, that people start to say, we can do better. Um, but I think the reality is, to your point, I don't think that friction goes away overnight. Not everybody's in at-risk contracting. Um, you know, people have, you know, very different business objectives than how they approach the market. Um, I do think, you know, one of the other things that's driving the change is increasing consumeriza consumerization. And, uh, and this is where I'll lay up to, to Jen. You know, I think that, that CMS, through their payment reform, has really been brilliant in really putting sort of value at the forefront um, incentive-wise for both payers and providers to change the business model, right? Not just counting at-risk contracts for Medicare Advantage, but any at-risk contracts for providers and for payers for credit. It was ingenious lever, like Atlas, like in there changing an industry. Um, but, you know, there are regs in place. We, we started with patients, right? We said everybody could agree we should give patients their own information. And I think we're seeing varying degrees of success first in the availability of those APIs, but also I would say even the awareness building promotion of letting people, consumers like us, know that their data is out there. And I, if I, you don't mind, I'd love to tag Jen to talk about like what her real world experience is like there, even though there's rules in place that everybody has to share. <laughs> well, seems timely we're talking about this. It was two years ago this month that those mm -hmm. APIs had to go live. I mean, the first year, mo nobody's APIs were production ready. Like, I mean, it was literally, I, I've talked about this a lot. It was me cyber stalking the payer organizations, uh, harassing them on LinkedIn through email, any, any way I could get to them. I would, I had this very Gorilla, not playing on health girl here, but guerrilla warfare technique where I would just go after a single organization from the sweet suite up all the way down to anyone who had like any sort of IT title. And I would send them all a mass email at one time on a Monday. So they would all freak out at the same time because I knew somebody would know the answers. And that's how, you know, we were able to move very quickly in connecting to a lot of payers because a lot of them didn't have, you know, you couldn't just Google. Fine. You know, yeah. X payer plus fire API. It's not like the Google was uh, indexing those pages to show those keywords because nobody was putting on their marketing websites. So, you know, what we saw was like people kind of half built it. Um, I do think we pushed the door open for those patient access APIs, like us as a single little company. What I'm seeing now is, um, you know, a lot of payers complaining about the adoption of those APIs. Um, that there's not a high enough utilization. And, you know, for me, just kind of looking at our app user traffic and, you know, people trying to authenticate to use those patient access APIs, a lot of them are trying to connect to their commercial data. So a lot of the people who potentially would use those APIs can't use them because their data is available. It's only the mandated lines of business. So in order for you to really get true consumer adoption, it has to be all lines of business. It can't just be um, the CMS mandated lines of business, but CMS doesn't regulate the commercial lines of business that's off under the Office of Manager and Management and Labor. I don't know. Sounds right. Um, so I think where you're seeing payers kind of shifting their attention is they're like, okay, we built the infrastructure for, you know, the compliance check mark. How can we repurpose that for more business cases, which is payer-to-payer -payer data exchange or provider-to-payer data exchange, prior auth. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of the original fire teams getting repurposed internally within the organizations to start thinking about how to fulfill those workflows in the future. And I think we're at a little bit of a tipping point <laughs> to Jen's point, right? So we've got the set. So the second rule got delayed, right? We got yes. it. Then the administration 20, 2023 changed. 2023 to 2026. Yeah, that took some air out of, you know, some oxygen out of the room. Uh, for that momentum to the teams that Jen's talking about. But now we've got a proposed rule that dropped in December. It looks like we're gangbusters headed back towards this becoming a reality and going not just to patients, but also, oh, now you need to share this data with other providers, 
and you need to share this data with other payers. And I think that that ecosystem aspect that will get the utilization and for the people that are really trying to solve those business problems, you know, we are crushing providers with prior authorization. The AMA has had a very effective campaign to convince everyone of that truth. Um, and you're starting to see payers and vendors build sort of these standards into their core roadmaps um, so that they're starting to ready themselves. Um, I anticipate the start line will probably not be much prettier, but will at least, I think, have more of a push. And I would anticipate once we see final rules that I'd be surprised if we didn't actually start to see some enforcement, at least on the very basic functionality that you need for patient access API. But, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, when CMS decides to put some teeth behind these, you know, current regulations and then coming regulations. And we haven't even I, talked about cost transparency. I think for the, just for anyone listening, because Jocelyn and I just jumped between two laws, is that there were the the API requirements to go live July 1st of 2021. And underneath that, there was this concept of payer-to-payer -payer data exchange, which was originally supposed to be a 2023 kind of like go live date. And then they pushed it and now it's moved to 2026. And so what Jocelyn's referring to is there's a proposed rule that came out that clarifies the payer-to-payer -payer data exchange date, but also added in new kind of requirements around provider access APIs, prior auth, everything of that sort. So for anyone who's listening is we just jumped between two laws and I've reset. We can keep going. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I think that what's important for people to understand is that they're building, right? Yes. Just like if we think about USCDI and sort of the API requirements for the EHRs, increasing more and more data being available, CMS very clearly setting out a path to say, okay, first we're going to make you give patients their data. Now you need to share it with other payers. Now you need to solve other problems like prior authorization. Now you need to make sure the providers can get the same clinical data about the patients and the same claims data about patients. So it really is sort of building in a, a pretty obvious path for folks that are paying attention. But I think that you know part of our challenge, I think industry-wise, is getting the interrupt for the folks that aren't living and breathing this or maybe don't have a big toe in the water around you know um, government lines of business like Medicare Advantage or the the um the ACA plans, the plans that people buy off of me, their state or the federal exchanges. You know, yeah, Jen, yeah. I'm curious, just a question for you. So we're waiting. There was this NPRM from CMS with the patient access, the or I mean the the payer-to-payer -payer exchange, the provider-to-payer exchange. Um, and then you've been working with these payers to get their their APIs up for for the initial patient access rule. What is the word on the street in terms of when they think CMS is going to finally drop that final rule? Are people anticipating it this year or, or do we just not know? I, I think Jocelyn would know better than I do. I have, I have theories of what's going to be the most valuable going forward, but I don't know when they're going to drop it. It's supposed to be the end of this year, like, right? They're, they're planning to do it this year. I think that we would see it this year. I think if we didn't see it this year, we'd see it early next year. There's yeah. two regs that are sort of traversing CMS right now um, that are in some ways a little in conflict with each other. Uh, one of them is this long-awaited, anticipated rule about attachments and some existing X12 standards um, that got a ton of feedback that was slated to go out in September. And it just got pushed the next spring which I don't know if that's a signal or not a signal, but it's, it was supposed to come out. It was on the unified agenda for, sprint, for, the, for September and it got pushed to April of next year. Um, the only like official intel we have is that, you know, this existing rule expires, right? Three years out. Um, but I would think that based on pattern and activity to Jen's point, sort of what we're hearing, I, I would think that the earliest we would see it would be late fall um, just for the, volume of work and pricing and OMB efforts and sort of, you know, uh, mashing together of all the feedback. And, and if we didn't see it in Q1, then I think people would, we'd start to lose a little bit more of that momentum. Um, that it'll we, be interesting. Because, we've seen around it. Yeah, it'll be interesting because there's a ton of ONC rules due in the fall also. So, uh, and they've been trying to be more coordinated. So we shall well, see. I, I think they're tied to each other. I, I think that, yeah, the prior auth work is totally RFI is, you know, I think everybody's assuming that's a signal that we should see the CMS rule because of at least the fact that the, the, the EPA wasn't included in the first tranche of, um, of the, the H21 rule. So 
Well, I like the part in the proposed rule for the provider access APIs because those tie back to the ONC rule for the CERT updates. So the only way, I mean, this is my opinion, the only way that, you know, I think that that payer to, pro so payer to payer data exchange for anyone who's listening is the concept that if I go from one health plan to another, my data can go with me. So that is very much like a consumer driven workflow because the concept is I'm changing plans and all my historical claims data can go with me from plan A to plan B. That is essentially what payer to payer does. Provider to payer is different because that's where there's an actual like relationship between the provider and payer, which traditionally has been a contentious relationship because of what you guys laid out earlier in the podcast. Um, in my mind, the patient, the provider uh, fire APIs will be tied, like the reason why they can happen now is because of the G10 update under the conditions of certification for certified technology, right? So now the EHR vendors have put into place the ability for those fire APIs to exist for their customers. So their customers could expose those APIs directly to payers. I think the problem, and probably this is where the healthcare guys are going to get excited, is the problem for payer to provider exchange is the same thing that it is for patient access is you have to literally go from to every single EHR vendor, you have to register, and then you have to get authorized because those are not patient access APIs. Those are going to be provider access APIs. And I bet you they're going to reserve the right for the provider to authorize the payer to call those APIs. It's not going to be an auto, auto opt into that. So, you know, there's a part in the law that I hate, and I feel like ONC really messed up, just telling you guys, is where it kind of allows the provider to retain the right to authorize the third-party application, even though the exchange of data cannot happen until in the patient access workflow, the actual token is passed after the OAuth event has happened. So you're going to see that same thing happening with those fire APIs um, for provider to payer exchange, unless... You get all the payers to opt into Tefka, and then you get the national exchange, and it's not actually using fire, and blah 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 blah. And I'll let you guys talk now, but I kind of see it too, like, <laughs> like point to point fire exchange or this like national exchange at the like at the QHIN level. But you know, we know where QHIN stands. It's just treatment right now. Payment and operations hasn't been decided what it's going to look like. It's just being talked about. Yeah, I mean that that true statement. That 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 was all true. Uh, but but the uh, it, it is interesting uh, to to look at at what this might look like in in a, a Tefka enabled world. And and I think there's one of the reasons that it hasn't been fully fleshed out uh, yet is because we're we're still in in the community thinking through how that that all might work. And I think there's some room for even some demonstration projects that you might see. That if we, if we can enable those under the Tufka governance structure without uh, necessarily being fully tied to the current requirements of the QHIN technical framework, which you know, as as this group certainly knows, limits us to to IHE uh, based transactions between QHINs. There, there are some interesting possibilities there. And Jen, you you look. You look like uh, you really want to respond to something I said there. Well, you know, I just think I'm, I'm just going to be a little controversial on this call because Jocelyn has joined us, but I'm <laughs> optimistic about fire at, a fire at scale for Tefka right now. And here are my reasons why. One, there is like the only people talking about fire within the Tefka landscape are the people who are currently sitting in firework groups within the QHINs or the firework group at Care Quality. And a lot of that is really hypothetical. So it looks a lot more, you know, maybe there's stuff happening over at HL7 in specific groups, but I don't think there's enough people who have production experience with fire having these conversations. So in my mind, fires in the Tefka landscape is a lot farther out than people are talking about. I think they think it's gonna be like here in a second, it's not. If you can't get the open developer ecosystem to work, you're not going to get it to work within the fire uh, Tefka ecosystem. And then I think too, historically, payers have not been represented at the national exchange level. So there's only a limited amount of payers actually sitting there having the conversations when it could be a great place for provider to payer exchange or payer to payer data exchange. But I just think that like 
we are really far out for fire working within the TEFCA landscape and even the payer conversations, unless those rules that drop in September fast track all of that, which fast track in our world still means five years. I, I am actually optimistic that we will be on a much less than five year time frame. Uh, which is different from saying it's going to be a second. But uh, I, I, in all seriousness, though, you said you said a couple things there that I want to make sure that that I I understand and that that everyone listening understands. So the you met you made a reference in passing that that things aren't working in the fire open fire ecosystem, and I'm probably not quoting you exactly right. You know, they it's there's no reason to think that 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 they'll they'll work in, in TEPCA if they don't work in, in this open fire ecosystem. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure, fine. People do not have their APIs published. Uh, there's no way to register. Uh, the APIs go down. Uh, the teams that are allocated to those APIs get reallocated. So when something breaks, you definitely, that API is down for a long time. And I think the last thing is just the maturity of those APIs. Like a lot of the... EHR vendors, provider organizations, and payers, and fire, third-party fire server vendors put limits on the amount of queries you can do. So, you know, I'm just thinking like that, they're all, everybody's going to have to up their game in order to be doing that kind of national exchange level. I think there's a really important point here. Sorry. I think there's no, no, a couple things. So I think one of the things that we really need to look at, and I think, you know, Dave, you know, because of the work that you're doing in the industry, you know, I think that alongside DaVinci, the providers and payers involved in the fire landscape identified that there was a need to address some of the scaling challenges that mm -hmm. Jennifer's talking about. I think this is really important. So there's FAST, the Fire at Scale Task Force, because it's an acronym with inside of an acronym because Steve Paul's next to Big Dork. And, um, and, and ONC started that group, right? And they sort of birthed it out into the industry as another accelerator. But the convergence alignment, I like alignment better than convergence of the work that's happening in FAST and the work that's happening for TEFCA is critically important for it to come together. Because I think, and I think that Jennifer's onto something here. We live and breathe this on a day-to-day -day basis. I think everybody out there in the ecosystem outside of like the immediate meetings is like, oh, it's good, everything's gonna come together. But I think you have to be very planful and mindful and get to those friction points sooner rather than later. I'm probably gonna get in trouble for saying this in public um, to really make sure that that alignment is gonna happen. Because I mean, gosh, we all build stuff for a living. And if you're not planful and mindful about how you're going to converge two technologies, it's you're, there's just gonna be problems, right? So I do think sort of the, payment and operations side of the house, I think is critically important because to Jen's point, you're just keeping like one of the biggest stakeholders that funds most of this work and this activity out of the conversation. And those are the people that actually have lots of real world experience with fire successfully or not successfully at broad scale, literally using it in production environments because the feds made them go first, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important to leverage that because there, there's a lot of really important conversations happening and I think that, again, I'm, you know, I think the technology is one thing. I think sort of the business process changes and attitude sort of shift conversation is almost more important here than what the technological considerations are, that we can agree that we're likely going to need everything that's good that's in Tufka, right, to be able to get us to scale, and that there are going to be strategic places where people want to be point to point because that is going to fit their business model with their strategic business partners and they don't need third parties in the middle of it, right? So let's 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 plan for the end that we want to get to. So got one more. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that. Oh, no, go ahead, Jen, go ahead. This, this is a new one. I haven't been on my soapbox a lot about this because this is something I've been learning in the 2023 year. So mostly everything I've said has been like learnings from like, you know, prior years. Um, I think also a big issue that I see, and I'm not talking about the TEFCA ecosystem, I'm talking about the open developer ecosystem, is for the payer APIs, payers fell into two buckets. They built their own or they outsourced to a third-party fire server vendor. But those third-party fire server vendors were like, I mean, they, they in some capacity already service payers, but they were very open to supporting their payer customers and getting people onto those APIs. What you're seeing in the EHR side, so with certain technology vendors, 
is a very hands-off approach. So you have a, a couple of things. With the EHR vendors, if I was payer A and I want to go connect to an EHR to then connect to their provider organizations for those provider access APIs, which is how I assume they're going to work, how that's how I assume they originally going to work, is I first have to sign terms and conditions that those EHR vendors have assigned. And then there might be additional terms and conditions down at the provider level, even though it's supposed to be an open developer ecosystem and it, there's specific language under the conditions of certification on what those terms and conditions should look like and say. Um, a lot of them are really prohibitive and really wouldn't allow payers to do the things that they need to do. And so what I think is going to happen is you're really going to have kind of um, two groups get becoming very combative because right now for me, just requesting patient access APIs, I'm coming in contact with a lot of EHR, EHR vendors who really only honed in the, on the conditions of certification part and relied on maybe their certifier to help them check that box, but they didn't look holistically at Cures Act and their requirements under Cures Act as actors under information blocking. And that is where I'm really seeing a lot of friction. So a lot of their APIs are also not production ready. They're, they certify, but these are not production ready APIs. And also majority of the ecosystem, so beyond the top 10 vendors, there has been zero adoption from the provider organizations for these fire APIs. So that's another reason why you will not see this succeed in the open developer ecosystem or in TEFCA, because most of those EHRs are also not participating in any national network or QHIN to date. I have strong opinions. They can change, but those are them today. Well, fair enough. Uh, the, and Stephen, definitely want to get to you here in a minute, just, but just to react to that, some of what you were talking about there, you know, the adoption by providers who use the, you know, number 11 and beyond EHRs is a whole yeah. different question. But, but in terms of those various terms and conditions, I mean, that is exactly the problem, you know, one of the problems anyway, that, that a, a trust framework like Tufka can solve. Now, it requires everybody to agree on the terms and conditions uh, enough to, to be able to, to all mutually sign them, uh, which, which is, is maybe a little bit of what you're getting at, but at least there's, there's a path there uh, for, for the Tufka uh, to help. I was just going to say, Jen, I think you highlighted a really important point, which is that the payers are not actors under information blocking. So right. that, that makes it a lot harder to incentivize them. So we really have to look to the CMS rules to create those incentives. And there again, that's only going to be for those payers that are CMS regulated. Uh, with TEFCA being voluntary initially and not even having payment and healthcare operations SOPs finalized, seems like we're in a bit of a, a no man's land in terms of knowing how we're going to create in, the incentives to move that forward. Well, maybe I'm, Jocelyn, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think so. Here. So CMS has a broader control over payers in general um, from a regulatory perspective that they have not yet executed on. Um, at this point in time, the existing rule set is based around these Medicare Advantage and government plans, and I think that that's fine. I would say that I would caution, exactly because of the reason that Jen is talking about with the difficulty of adoption of consumers, is that when payers actually sort of put, when they're doing more than check the box, right? So if we think about our friends at Cambia, Humana, you know, some of the other leaders that we're seeing out in the industry here, People are standing services up holistically across all their lines of business, especially when we start to get to provider to payer, because the sort of thousand paper cuts aspect of which patient for which plan design is available or not available via this API won't be worth the sort of logistical business headache for payers to stand to, to deal with. So I think that, you know, change happens incrementally. And I think that Jen is part of that first wave, right, of, of implementation that is messy and dirty and, you know, like we'll laugh and joke about, you know, sort of in hindsight, you know, how Jen was stalking payers on a weekly basis. I, it's some of my famous favorite material to use to reference you when I talk about it. But that, you know, with, with, the, with the incremental release and requirements of these APIs, I think, again, likely some enforcement action on folks that aren't being compliant. Um, as examples by our friends at CMS, 
that you'll see that the maturation will happen and the bodies and the business processes and operational support, DevOps support of these services um, will become more real with each sort of budget year, right, for these organizations. Because the reality is, is that, you know, on the payer side of the house, EDI had basically gotten to sort of stasis, right? Like no change. And so a lot of those teams of people that were sort of in charge of the data at payers have really winnowed. So in a large way, um, what we're seeing is people coming back um, and bringing like the next generation of people to do this in the industry. I think though, what, what does the proposed rule say about the provider access APIs? How, what, what, is, what is the yeah, language? So what it does is it goes and it basically updates everything that's happened to date um, in patient access APA and says, now you have to do it. And these are the guides we're referencing in this version of the rule. John, I'd anticipate in a future version of the rule, it'll say you have to use these guides, but at this point in time, there's still draft guides. So that's still referencing. So they're strengthening the language. And they're saying, oh, and for all the things that you have to do for providers, I mean, for patients, you now need to do it for providers and also fix prior auth and do these other additional workflows that weren't mentioned in the patient-specific rule and adding content and complexity to the things that patients are getting so that the data itself is a little bit more rich. But it's, yeah. it's, it's basically sort of ring-fencing all of the existing work. But basically what it says is that a provider can go to a payer and say, give me all the data you have about my patients. And, uh, and you know, not only the historical claims data, but also any clinical data that they've collected. Yeah, yes. I, I think that from what I think, so like, but the, let me just backtrack. What I'm trying to say in my very roundabout way is that you still just have fundamental developer first issues in these APIs that just make it such an effort to do things like that's why there's middleware companies standing up like we have an API to help people do this that one record now because everyone's like we need a national directory we need a single API to connect like we do that because it's such an effort the effort could be solved by Tefka could be solved by national exchange I just think if you can't get the open developer ecosystem to work why do you think it's going to work at scale in a national exchange that's kind of like and as somebody who's been overly optimistic about patient access for as long as I've been doing this, that's just kind of where I'm at at the moment. It could change. Strong opinions loosely held. Fair enough. To sort of wrap up that, that pair conversation a little bit and maybe summarize and kind of put it into a, a perspective. True story, I'm, I'm about to change uh, in about four to five weeks onto Health Gorilla's insurance plan. Uh, and we'll be be switching my providers because naturally the ones I use currently aren't in network for that plan and yada yada. Um, what am I actually able to do? It sounds like I would be able to go to my old payer through one record or or others who offer such services and get the patient facing copy of my claims data. Uh, and then I could provide that to my new payer. The odds are, it sounds like, that my, my old payer and new payer would not necessarily be all that likely to connect to one another and pull my data over without my intervention. Is that a fair assessment? Um, I think the first part is totally on track, and I'll let Jen elaborate, but on the payer-to-payer -payer side, what we have seen is, again, there is a subset of payers that are going ahead and allowing that data to move. The question is, is for either of your payers, did they include um, their, um, their commercial lines of business, assuming you're on a commercial plan and you're going to another commercial plan in their initial offering? Or are you sort of in the next batch of functionality that's coming along? And that will be 100% dependent on the particular payer and and yeah. how much they decided to check a box versus actually offer the innovation. So Jen can probably answer it if you give her the right information. And I think that you'd want to identify someone like One Medical to be your front end, right, to do that work. Um, so when the rule first came out and they were discussing payer to payer, they were trying to decide if it was always going to be like 
patient authorized. Like essentially like I, as a user kind of sign up for a one record app, and then I go through an OAuth workflow and I, you know, want my data to go to my next payer. Right. And there were a lot of payers that said, no, 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 like we just shouldn't need the consumer. We should be able to just ask them and then we'll start doing the exchange and the whole conversation around like BAAs and data usage rights came into play and what, you know, they don't, with the patient access APIs, you get the clinical data and the financial data. So a payer to payer, you're not, the financial data does not flow, only the clinical data flows. So the way that it works right now is Jocelyn's right. There's a subset of very proactive, you know, visionary payers who over the past two years have said, okay, we're going to keep working on payer to payer. We're going to sign contracts with each other. We constantly have payer um, members coming into our network, coming out of our network. So they are probably facilitating pair to pair data exchange. And that's at the, like, those are the big national guys, right? Mm -hmm. um, Jocelyn's right. Also for the commercial data, you know, I'm not going to say on this podcast who offers the commercial data because I'll probably get in trouble, but certain payers offer commercial data, certain payers don't. And if all the big payers offered the commercial data, you would see a much higher conversion rate because you know, right now it's just like, if you, did you buy your plan on the ACA? Is it Medicaid, um, Medicare Advantage, CHIP, things of that sort. So you're already dealing with, you know, a member population that just has less access or need to kind of do that stuff because they're already kind of being managed through other programs and things of that sort. So I think that in order to see payer-to-payer -payer data exchange be super successful and the patient access APIs be super successful, you need the commercial data to go live. And then you're going to see the big tech giants jump in because then when you add in price transparency, you can build the Expedia of healthcare. That's what I think. And, and I'll say out loud, just as an advertisement for payers are on the fence of waiting till 2026 to do payer to payer. What we hear from the providers that are involved in the community is if the payers could talk to each other and not have to come back to the patient, or to the provider every time the patient changes insurance, it would take a huge burden off the provider organizations that are supplying all of this data, often without any sort of like revenue generating event to offset this request that's coming into them. So um, while it seems like it's a very payer heavy use case, it really is one of those layers that we can pull off of the providers. I, I agree with that because like uh, the Genesis story for one record was like trying to get all your medical records out of a binder digitally. We know the story, but something that, you know, was a big kind of learning from all our early users was a lot of them, you know, they needed their clinical data to flow with them between payers, because a lot of times if they switch payers then the payer wouldn't pay for those meds or those programs yeah. or whatever they were on. So I do think that it is, would be very valuable for reduction of just the, paper burden that all the covered entities have to deal with. I just don't know if you can assign a dollar amount to that. So maybe that's why it's not prioritized, but like that, that is a real thing that impacts patient care. Yep, definitely. I, I look forward to, to my, my, uh, my payer transition. Uh, no, actually I don't. I'm, I'm kind of dreading it. There's a I'm reason for it, but, but uh, there's, there's, you know, it, it is, it's a process and it's unfortunate that it's, it's painful for, for, for the patients that, that, that need to, to do it. Um, but it's, it's something that currently we're all just, just accepting uh, and hopefully there'll be uh, something better for us going forward. With that, uh, let's let's actually change gears entirely uh, and, and you know, really pretty radically to a different direction here in the last few minutes. Uh, you know, Stephen, last week you were on social media talking about USCDI version four. Um, I will freely admit that while USCDI advancement is an important thing, it does not stir my blood the way it, it does yours. <laughs> so, so maybe tell me why I should be excited about USCDI version four. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I've been very involved in the advancement of USCDI and have been working with the various ONC teams that have pushed that along now through the various versions. And, you know, it you know, now with information blocking having a scope of all electronic health information, people sometimes ask, well, why is USCDI even important anymore? And it's because that is where we actually specify how the data is going to be transmitted. It's fine to have to say you share it, you have to share all the data, 
but if it's not in a standardized format with with data definitions, it's not really going to be very useful. So you know, ONC moves USCDI forward slowly in a very deliberative way because they don't want to overwhelm the industry with too many new requirements. But there's some exciting stuff in USCDI version four. Uh, and uh, what we know about USCDI in general is that today version one is the only one that's required by the majority of the rules and regulations, but that in the recent ONC notice of proposed rulemaking, they've suggested that USCDI version three is going to become the new standard for exchange as of the end of next year. So the first of 2025. And I've talked to folks at ONC, you know, that, who've suggested that that's probably also going to be baked into TEFCA, you know, when we're looking at the version two of the, the TEFCA agreements and what's going to be required for fire exchange. So the, the movement of USCDI from version one to version three is a really big deal. There's a lot of new stuff in version three that's not in the current version. So version four, chances are, won't be named in rulemaking for another two years after that, given the way things are going. So some of this is definitely future focused. But as each version is, is included in the standards version advancement process, what we see is certified health IT developers starting to build toward it, to it, starting to be able to exchange these data. So even though it's not going to be required potentially for years, we're going to start to see this data freeing up. So from a clinical perspective, I mean, if you're allergic to peanuts or latex, that really affects your care. And today, there's no way in USCDI in a standardized way to express that somebody has a non-medication allergy. So that's a big deal. Uh, and as a clinician, I can tell you that can be a life-saving piece of information. Similarly, with laboratory results, USCDI already contains laboratory results, but they didn't bother to put in the units of measure or whether it's normal or abnormal or the reference range. And there again, it's like as a provider, I can't really interpret a test result. I mean, I can guess whether that was normal or abnormal, but you gotta give me this additional data, you know, the metadata, the data about the data, so I can really interpret that. And same with medications. You, you have to be able to share a list of medications, but you don't have to say what the instructions were, whether it was to take one a day or one a month, or three a day, you know, so now version four has medication instructions. So those are just, you know, some key examples as a physician that I can tell you are really important to be able to share that level of detail of data so that we can take care of patients. So, I mean, that excites me. Um, ONC each year does have another cycle. So they're kicking off their next cycle to uh, plan for version five, which we'll see a year from now. Um, and if people want to get involved in this, that input both on what's right and wrong about the current version of USCDI and what should be considered in the future is going to be open till you know into September of this year. And then the last thing I'll say is that each year ONC also identifies areas of focus that they want to attend to in the next cycle of USCDI rulemaking. And for next year, what they said was they wanted to focus on the interoperability of diagnostic imaging data, not just the results, the printed textual results, but the actual images themselves. And also, interestingly, uh, the ability to identify and track unique health concerns of veterans and people in the military. So that's not been something in the past. So that's a new, new introduction. So yeah, I get excited about USCDI. What can I say? Well, wait, going back to the veteran part. Yeah. TRICARE doesn't have an API. Does that mean we're going to get TRICARE APIs? We might at least get some more of their data elements, right? USCDI is just about the data elements. I don't know why. They messed up with that. Only veterans, not active military, can get their data via an API. So I'm actively trying to get VA to join DaVinci. I'm working on it. I'm working Good. on it over Go here. Go get it. So. I'm like, what were you, what were you doing? So, so I think there's a really important point here from a USCDI perspective about this predictability and the advancement process, SVAP, um, is that it really does set the expectation and it sets it, it allows people to raise the floor. Because I think to date, one of our big challenges in, in, in industry has been we stick people to a standard and basically we penalize at anybody that tries to go higher than what's in the standard. So the innovation and sort of the advanced, that, that, team that's going ahead, I think will be rewarded, whether it's vendors, payers, providers, other stakeholders, and 
U.S. health care to go ahead of where the standard is. But it's so critical that that SVAP and the USCDI movement is actually getting us off of one and over to three um, because we started four and a half, five years ago on many of these guides targeting USCDI three, right? All of our guides are built and many of the other guides that are sort of getting published and moved through the HL7 process today are built to USCDI three and we're updating, you know, two later, later versions in anticipation of sort of that timeline moving forward. But again, there's a community that we're building of developers and and SMEs, you know, experts from different companies and them knowing, all of us knowing what's coming and that, 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 the, that it's going to get ratcheted up over time is really critical. Um, I think I would always want it to be faster than it is, but am appreciative of the fact that we now have a way to, to raise the floor. And Dave, I think that's really exciting because otherwise, you know, sort of the, the churning of standards changes in a, in a more, in a more um, static world is, um, is really hard to innovate. I'm very well, excited. It, it, it absolutely yeah. is. No, go, go ahead, Jen. I'm just saying, I, I agree with Stephen. I'm very excited as well. I think, you know, the just dealing with USCDI one, you're already like, all right, let's go. Come on. Yeah. Come on. What's next? We're ready. But like, that's old news. We've been dealing with that for a year. Let's, let's move. Well, and, and maybe one reason I should be more excited. Um, I, I actually thought that, and maybe I just made this up, but I, I thought that part of the standards advancement process in many rules, not maybe I'm sure, you know, there's there's some where it just points literally to a specific standard. But I thought that in, in more recent ones, they were leveraging the, the fact that there is this predictable advancement in the US CDI. And so that it wasn't just a static reference to version one or version two, but but to like the, you know, the then current US CDI version that's been out there for a year or whatever the caveats they wanted to put on there. It's not just the USCDI. What's happened, I mean, we talked about ONC and CMS working together. ONC and HL7 are working together. So we've now got a coordinated annual process where you know HL7 gets to see what's being proposed for USCDI. They get to do the work and come back and say what's really going to be ready to include. And then there is a certain amount of time to what's really going to be delivered out into the industry. So I think this notion of the annual cyclical update is really critical because not only do we continue to see progress, but also people are reassured that even if their pet project doesn't get in this year, that there's a good chance it's going to get in next year, that, that this, this slow incremental change is something that reassures people. The imaging piece is a great example. I mean, I put a lot of energy into trying to get image files or, or image references into USCDI this year. We did a whole thing at HIMSS. It was a big deal. And then they didn't include it. So like, oh, I'm crestfallen. But, but I know, but now it's a priority for next year. So if I'll be real surprised if something doesn't get in next year. I have a question. When will all of the data be mapped to USCDI? Like, all the data. Like, I've got a new granddaughter. I'm thinking maybe by the time she is, you know, an adult, that would be a good time. Well, I want to. I want to just interject because I think one of the powers of the fire paradigm, and not to be like sort of a fire fan here, but one of the important paradigms here, and I think some work that this that the ONC team is doing around USCDI plus and projects like Codex is mapping oncology you know, um, to fire. And so I think that what you're seeing is with this momentum is even if everybody doesn't have to move the floor up, individual communities are starting to extend the language and the terminology for its specific purpose. Um, and that those, to Stephen's point, in sort of the, in the winnowing down of what's ready and what's ready for prime time to actually go into USCDI gets sped up. But you know, I think so much of the power that we've got around interoperability right now is, again, not the technology itself, but the fact that we are providing a place in industry for all of the stakeholders around a particular domain to advance um, at the end of the day, right? And I think that they get to talk to each other in a way that they couldn't when everybody was, you know, putting fists up with each other or sort of stuck inside their own organizations with these sort of big, large transaction files that were more brittle and harder to change. I think I read this on Twitter that, <laughs> so don't quote me. I think I read, I think Brendan Keeler tweeted this like months ago 
Brendan, if you're listening, um, that with, so some of the EHR vendors are show or already have their all EHI export out, which is like everything, right? Like you can get a lot of the data via fire. So like, it's easier to get it via fire than like a CSV file of some weird sort or whatever data dump it's going to be. But he was, I think he had tweeted something like you kind of can get insights into the EHR vendors data models. And so I'm really interested to see how people start playing with the all EHI export to then expedite the development of like standards of, for USCDI because you're kind of starting to see like all the, I don't know, this is just my brain having random thoughts on this podcast, but that, that's going to be interesting to see how people experiment going forward. Does that make sense? We should it, it, it does. It does, oh, actually. Uh, so so it, it, it's an interesting, interesting thought about how you can start to gain insights. Yeah, when you first asked your question, you know, uh, my my thought was cynically, well, and, and actually not even cynically, just never. You're never going to have a model that has all of the data uh, because there's always going to be some new innovation that somebody is doing out there where, oh, hey, we didn't think about that across all the other platforms. And so it's not part of the standard data model, but maybe it will be three years down the and road well, from that point. But we're going to manage that innovation more quickly after the experience of the, the pandemic. I mean, we saw, you know, new tests, new new codes came out, and we were able to spin them out across the ecosystem really fast. So it's not, it won't be a three-year cycle for that. Yeah, I think it's well, more like, do we have the right containers and, and sort of like rails and pulleys and hooks in place? And that when something new comes in, does it look like something already that exists? Or is it really something new and novel, right? And I yeah. feel like we're still building the hooks and the pulleys and the rails. Um, and, and once we get beyond that, to Stephen's point, we'll be a lot more resilient, right? To be able to adapt to new content. Yeah, and, and exactly, that, that, Jocelyn, that was exactly what I was, was trying to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess my, my hypothesis is, is that somebody will always be creating a new pulley uh, and, and it won't be standardized yet. Uh, and, and that's okay. You know, as we it'll get easier and easier to to be faster at reacting to those innovations, as we've gotten the whole you know other ninety eight percent of the shared data model standardized. You know what I I'm pivoting. Go with me here. <laughs> Going back to data, I still wonder. I would love to see some sort of statistic. There's a lot of providers that don't have cert technology in place. And like, and a lot of the, and there's a lot of EHRs who are cert vendors who have customers who haven't adopted their cert modules. So they're sitting on like a non-certified module using it. And I like, I'm so, I'm so curious about those numbers right now, because something I've been seeing is a lot of, you know, where the incentives are going to be going forward for adopting standards and technology. So that's going to have to be new rules and new programs. Um, and, you know, I don't know if people are talking about that because whenever I see people quote like the adoption rate of EHRs or things of that sort, they're always talking about certified EHRs and they're using like, uh, they're using data from some of the reporting programs and all that stuff. So like, that's the thing that I've been thinking about and I don't really know how to research my answer just yet. So if you guys know, please let me know. But Not the, only are there the, providers that, that don't use certified EHRs, but there are a lot of other folks in, in the healthcare ecosystem that don't use EHRs or certified health IT at all as well. You know, I mean, the, the <laughs> whole, so much of the post-acute world, so home care, community-based care, social services. I mean, you know, there's, we've physicians who enjoyed, you know, the incentive program and put in certified EHRs really only represent a small subset of the community that really needs to engage in interoperability if we're going to bend the curve on health. I think this is a really important point. I've actually, because I came up through pharmacy and pharmacy workflows um, in prior authorization, I've spent some time around post-acute care, long-term care, home health. Um, and they are, you know, in often sort of technology deserts, right? Because there were no dollars headed their way. Um, truism, which is if you're solving a real business problem, then people will fund solving that problem, whether it be the payers incenting or helping part of that community along. Um, or I think that, you know, the onus will be on our, you know, federal colleagues to, to, um, to align 
um, and, and ensure that dollars are available for that advancement to happen. Um, but I, I think that all of the work that we talked for the first 45 minutes about is about leveling the field so that it is way easier, right, for somebody to have a lightweight app to do what they would have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to do in the past um, yeah. in a way that I don't, you know, I think of, I always think about like my first iPhone that I got. I'm like, it's kind of a crappy phone. It's got these apps. I don't really know what to do with them. And today I basically can run my entire life off my phone or my iPad. You know, I go to the iPad when I need the screen to be bigger because I'm older. Um, but, but that I can do everything there. We are literally like on version one or two of an iPad with our, with our relationship with APIs and data exchange today. And, and, and the question is, is can we focus on the business challenges? Because people will fund the business challenges if they're solving real problems. I, I think that was actually a, a fantastic way to <laughs> close things out. Uh, I, I, I'm suggesting we let Jocelyn have the last word there. We're on, we're on version one of the iPad and, and there's more to come. Um, so thank you so much, Jocelyn, uh, for, for joining us today. And, and thanks as always, Jennifer and Stephen as well. And uh, with that, thank you and uh, take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.